Let's bow for prayer together. Dear Lord, we just thank you for that wonderful singing we've just experienced and the surprise and the wonder of your love and of your breaking into our world. Thank you for the precious love of Jesus. Thank you that he came at such great cost into our world. And Lord, today we consider the cost of following this suffering, Lord. Help us to understand, help us to apply, and may, Lord, our hearts be those that want to suffer for the name of Jesus. We adore him and honor him that much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is quite a passage we're looking at this morning. The cost of Christmas is always a lot more than we think, isn't it? I mean, the presents, the cards, the postage, of course, especially if you're sending overseas, the food and drink, perhaps the new outfit, the petrol for the journey that you're going on, maybe interstate, it all adds up. It costs. But here in 1 Peter, we're thinking about a different kind of cost because of Christmas, the cost of following the Savior who was born at Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Let me share with you this morning the story of Eldos. Eldos is 25 years old. He's a Christian convert from Islam living in Kyrgyzstan. On October the 17th this year, that's under two months ago, Eldos was cornered in a courtyard by three young Muslims in his home village of Tamchi. They attacked Eldos and beat him so severely he was left fighting for his life. With severe concussion, a fractured jaw, knocked out teeth, a serious eye injury and suspected brain damage. By God's grace, He survived but requires ongoing surgery, which I know that the Barnabas Fund are helping to pay for. In the same month, in the same country, a pastor's grandson was severely beaten at school for his faith. This is the world we live in. And as we know, many believers pay a high price throughout our world for their allegiance to Christ the Savior born at Christmas. And Peter addresses that issue here in chapter 4 of his first letter. He takes the opportunity to address questions such as, why this persecution happens? What does it mean to those who suffer? Does any good come from it? And how should the persecuted respond? So what does take Uh, Peter tell us about suffering for Christ. First, he tells us it's the normal path. It's the normal path. Verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. As you may remember, when we studied this letter four years ago, 
1 Peter is addressed to a whole range of churches, uh, 10 or more, spread across modern-day Turkey in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It's all there in chapter 1, verse 1. And in those five regions are the churches of Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, and Ephesus. And the Christians there knew what it meant to suffer for Christ, as the book of Acts makes clear. In Acts chapter 14, the Apostle Paul tells the Christians in some of those cities, he says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And of course, it was Paul himself and his companion Barnabas on that first missionary journey who had faced the brunt of most of that persecution, stoned by a mob and left for dead in the town of Lystra. Paul knew and Peter knew that opposition to Jesus and the gospel was normal. It was to be expected. The Lord himself had warned of it many times. Here's one example from John 16. A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. And so Peter writes, friends, do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. The persecution, the fiery ordeal of verse 12 was a way to test their faith, to prove it was genuine. Suffering for Christ was a refining of the believer. Hear what Peter writes in in chapter 1. All kinds of trials have come so that your faith, even though refined uh, of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So suffering for Christ was part of being his follower. Jesus once said, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Since it's normal and to be expected to suffer for our faith, Peter tells us, How to respond. Verse 13. Rejoice. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Well we hear that. And we've just heard about Eldos and the little grandson. Aren't we stunned? What an extraordinary statement. But Peter is saying here that suffering for faith in Jesus means we have a share in his suffering. And that should be a cause for rejoicing. We may say, well, that's easy for Peter to say. But you know what? He lived that out himself. As recorded in Acts 5. Peter and the other apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem 
shortly after the ascension of Jesus and the day of Pentecost. They were preaching, they were arrested, brought before a court, flogged, and then released. And warned never to preach of Christ again, which of course they refused to do. And as they left the courthouse, as they left the prison cells, we're told in Acts 5 verse 41, the apostles left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, the name of Jesus. What did Paul and Silas do in the prison cells of Philippi? They sang. Gosh, I hope I'd sing if I was in their boots. What a thing to do. What a thing to do. To sing your heart out when you're in prison for your faith. And the challenge for us is to have that same perspective. To see suffering, any disgrace because of our Christian faith as a cause for joy and honor. To realize that we've participated in the sufferings of Christ. That is not a natural place for us to go. But it's what Peter is encouraging Christians to see. Because we have a sovereign Lord who's in control of everything anyway. We've nothing to fear. The disgrace, as it were, of suffering for Christ will look different for each believer in our world. For Eldos, it was physical attack, threatening injury. For some, it's jail or worse. For others, it's no employment, no education for your kids, no health care. Perhaps for some, it's a long-standing friendship severed because you become a Christian. Overseas travel denied to some because of their faith. No senior position in a government organization or company offered because the bosses know we're a Christian. All of us can think of other disgraces or know them firsthand because of Christian allegiance. But Peter says, dear friends, do not be surprised. It's the normal path. The second feature of suffering for Christ, according to Peter, is that it's a path to blessing. It's a path to blessing. Verse 14. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Sound familiar a bit? It might do. Because it's clearly based on Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in the very next sentence, Jesus declares, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. It's a remarkable paradox, isn't it? Suffering brings 
blessing in God's scheme of things. For many Christians in our world, it won't seem there's any blessing in suffering for Jesus. Take the story of Pastor Sujit, not his real name, in India. Pastor Sujit has been in the same village as a church leader for 15 years. During that time, Hindu extremists, the feared RSS, have destroyed his church three times. And each time they have come, they have beaten him severely. The last beating was so bad that church members had to rush him to hospital. He made a complaint to the police, but nothing happened. He felt that for the sake of his wife and his family, he should leave that village. He says it was heartbreaking. After he left the village, he learned through the Christian agency Open Doors of people who pray, support, and help persecuted believers like me, writes Sujit. He felt encouraged by that and began to meet secretly with his church members. And he still hopes to rebuild his church in that village yet another time. Pastor Sujit said earlier this year, the lonely feeling in my heart disappeared when I heard about so many people who were suffering with joy for Jesus. I was able to share these teachings with my church members during my secret visits. Sujit has suffered, but he was blessed to discover he was not alone. Far from abandoning such people, God is closer to them than they could possibly imagine. In fact, back in 1 Peter 4.14, Peter underscores the presence of God with his suffering people by an amazing reference to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And you say, well, what's all that about? What's that verse about? That verse is a prophecy of Jesus, of God's Spirit resting on the Messiah to come. It's a prophecy made 700 years before Jesus' birth at Bethlehem. And Peter reworks that prophecy of Isaiah and extends it to those who suffer for that very Messiah and his name. Here in verse 14, he says that they will have the same blessing as Jesus. He says of them, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You who suffer for Jesus. I hope Pastor Sujit has read that verse. I hope the imprisoned Christians of northern Korea and many countries know that verse and that God's spirit rests on them. I hope those who grieve the murder of a Sudanese pastor in Darfur in March this year, gunned down with his wife and two daughters 
because he refused to stop preaching the gospel. I hope his family and his friends know that God is with them, that God's spirit rests on them. He's near to the brokenhearted and he's near to the persecuted. God honors these people. Who has the white robes in glory in the book of Revelation? The martyrs. And they deserve them. The promises of God in Scripture. That's what our friends who are persecuted need to hear, aren't they? I will never leave you nor forsake you. And neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we hear of people like Pastor Sujit Eldos and that brave family in Darfur, we know that that's true Christian suffering. In verse 15, Peter won't have a bar of anyone who suffers for the wrong reasons because they break the law or meddle in affairs that are not their own and suffer the consequences. No, he's focused on real suffering. Suffering for Jesus' name, for honoring their Lord and Savior. In verse 16, if any believer is prepared to do that, they should be unashamed. In fact, Peter tells them, praise God that you bear that name. So next time, because you're a Christian, or say you are, you get a cold look, receive a terse comment, even from a family member, or are even publicly made fun of or ridiculed in the cafeteria area at work because you went to church on Sunday. Remember these words of the Apostle Peter. Be unashamed and even praise God you bear Christ's name. You are honored and privileged to belong to the Savior. Who's more to be pitied? Us for getting the terse comment or people who make them who are so lost they have no idea of the God who loves them and died on a cross for them. So far we've seen that suffering for Jesus is the normal path. It's a path even to blessing. And finally, it's the path of judgment. The path of judgment. Verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What are we to make of that verse? What's Peter saying here? Well, it seems that he's linking up with verse 12 where we began. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. He's really saying judgment for the believer has already started. We think of judgment as only referring to the last day, the day of Christ's return. And yes, Scripture makes that clear. There will be 
such a day. And there will be that final judgment. But Peter is also saying here that for Christian believers, judgment has already begun. And it comes in the guise of Christian suffering and persecution. The fiery ordeal, as Peter puts it. And this judgment of God has two stages. And I think those two stages help to make sense of the confusion that persecuted Christians must have faced all through the centuries. Stage one of judgment is the refining through suffering for the believer. It will take different forms and mainly be determined where people live in the world and and in what era as to how extreme the suffering is. Many persecuted Christians, past and present, would be confused by the fact that while they are ostracized, beaten, imprisoned, many facing the prospect of death if their faith is revealed, while they endure all that, their persecutors are able to live prosperous lives, live in wonderful homes, and die in their beds in old age surrounded by friends and family. But Peter has already explained that sadly, this unfairness is to be expected. Do not be surprised, verse 12. And now here in verse 17 we read, judgment begins with God's household. That's stage one. Christian persecution is the beginning of judgment. Its purpose being to test and refine the believer and and for them to share in the sufferings of Christ. Stage two is the wider judgment. When those outside God's household, outside God's family of believers, face the ultimate judgment. The Apostle Peter writes, and it's sober. If judgment begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's a rhetorical question. The sober fact is, Peter knew the answer, and so do we. And the following verse, verse 18, is a direct quotation of Proverbs 11.31, where the righteous is the Christian and the ungodly, the sinner, the one who rejects and disobeys the gospel. Verse 18, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Again, we know the answer. Sadly, many in our world make the choice to either ignore their creator or to refuse to admit he even exists. Often disparaging the gospel, Christian people, and the person of Jesus Christ himself. Either way, a calamitous choice is made from which at judgment there is no return. There is no way back. Our task is to warn 
and to reach out with the gospel, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And so finally to verse 19, and Peter's message to suffering Christians in the light of all he said in the preceding seven verses. It's his message of application, if you like. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. The message is clear. Don't give up. Keep going. Two specific things they're to do. Give themselves to God. Give themselves to serving. Giving themselves to God. That means, says Peter, committing and trusting themselves to their faithful creator. Who, whatever they may be facing in terms of insults, persecution, and danger, is sovereign in all things. Whatever happens, they're to remember that he's in control. Friends, we need to remember that. Things are getting tougher to be a Christian, even in Australia. Who's in control, really? God is. God is in control. We're to give ourselves to God. Second, he says, Give yourselves to serving. Peter writes, continue to do good. Isn't that the fitting response to the slander and suffering that Peter's readers were facing? Earlier in the letter, Peter says, It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men and women. Jesus silenced a lot of critics by doing good. You remember how he healed the man with a withered arm in the synagogue on the Sabbath? Is it right to show mercy on the Sabbath? They had no answer to that. The man was healed. They didn't say a word. We can silence a lot of people by the way we live, by doing good, by not trading insult for insult. By praying for those we know who maybe really snipe at us for our Christian faith. To love them as God loves them. Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus was no lovely neighbor. He hated Christians. But he became a Christian. He saw Stephen martyred. It changed everything, I think. When Jesus spoke to him on that road to Damascus... He knew instinctively already of the truth of the gospel. Jesus silenced a lot of critics by doing good. We can do the same. Maybe in our day, that's the main way to show the gospel. is to live it out. To share that love. To let our lives speak in a winning, wonderful way for Jesus. We're to walk in his steps, follow his example, always remembering that if he suffered, we may be called to suffer too as his people. Are we prepared for that walk? Let me pray.
Dear Lord, you are the Lord who suffered on the cross for us, but rose again to glory. We thank you that in the Christian world there is suffering, but there is glory. And we pray, Lord God, we would have that perspective, your perspective. Help us to honor you and to pray for those who especially are persecuted for their faith in lands throughout our world just because they follow Jesus. We lift them to you today. Help them to be faithful. Help us to be faithful and to honor our Lord. We pray in his precious name. Amen.